This is Using the Whole Whale, stories of data and technology in the social impact world. My name is George Weiner, your host and the chief whaler of wholewhale.com. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to episode number 88, where we have got our field reporter, Olivia, coming to us live. Well, pre-recorded, I'll be honest, Olivia, right from South By. I wish I was still at South By. The tacos, man. Hey. So you were able to wrangle some amazing interviews while out there. I'm incredibly excited that you'll be sharing them with our audience. But to kick it off, you went pretty aggressive. You found Tim O'Reilly, pinned him down, and got him to talk about his new book. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, first of all, uh, hell of a way to start your South by conference, getting yelled at for being too loud with Tim O'Reilly while they're trying to do Ready Player One interviews on the other side of the curtain uh, <laughs> in the media village. Uh, Tim and I spoke about his new-ish uh, book. It came out last October called WTF, What's the Future and Why It's Up to Us. And we loved him over here at Whole Whale. Uh, O'Reilly Media is... All things data, uh, he is the guy between the terms open source and web 2.0, and just a delightful human being who believes that we should be using our technological superpowers for good uh, to fight the kryptonite of inequality. Ooh, I like those words. I like his take on things because he's got such a long view and lens and then deep technical knowledge, but he makes it so accessible. Uh, you know, I, I listened to the interview. There are certain points that, you know, I, I hope people pull away from it. Um, but it, but it's important narrative in my mind is, uh, the social responsibility undertones that must move from nice to necessary in major companies dealing with, uh, with our data. Yeah. I also think that he, one of the reasons that I admire his work so much is that he has gone uh, so long in the industry, as you mentioned, and his position is continually evolving. And to that point, he mentions that we have gone from the WTF of wonder to the WTF of despair. And I think that nonprofits and social impact organizations may be the ones to help us get back to the WTF of wonder with, uh, with technology. And with that, People are tired of hearing us talk. Uh, you're going to hear Olivia in the field and possibly some interruptions from Ready Player One, which obviously is incredibly important. Uh, but I'm excited to hear this. Thank you for getting out there and chasing down this interview. Thanks, Olivia. Thanks for sending me. I'm wondering if you can talk to me at first just a little bit about uh, WTF and the uh, the learnings that uh, informed it and sort of your view on the current economy. Yeah. Well, I wrote the book, which is called WTF, What's the Future and Why It's Up to Us, uh, because I saw that uh, technology had gone from the WTF of amazement and was heading towards the WTF of dismay. You know, it's like, and, uh, uh, when I say WTF, I don't mean what's the future. Uh, <laughs> I... Uh, and I thought, we really have to deal with this because uh, tech can be a force for good, but we have a bunch of boneheaded people in Silicon Valley who are, you know, not thinking that way. And, but also then, I, as I really thought about it, I, I realized how much the history of the movements that I've 
been part of over 35 years in the tech industry have to teach us about the economy. Because if you look at the history of something like, when I entered the industry, Microsoft was the big kahuna, and they were squeezing the lifeblood out of the tech industry by taking all the value for themselves. And then along came this movement, uh, you know, the open source movement and the World Wide Web, which sort of cracked everything open again, made opportunity for everyone, created vast new wealth. And then I watched slowly as companies like Google and Facebook, uh, you know, squeezed the life out of it, made less opportunity for others. Um, and so I said, oh, this is a really good object lesson on what's happening to the broader economy. Because you have elites who are in power who are saying, oh, we'll take all the value and we'll leave less for everyone else. And it's ultimately how nations fail. But it's also, I thought, how platforms fail. And so by telling that story of the rise and fall of platforms, I thought I could add something to the debate about uh, the economy. But I also, as I developed the book, I realized that there was a lot more to the story because in some sense, we're now in the throes of these vast digital platforms that shape how we think, that increasingly shape how we work, uh, where uh, so much is guided by algorithms. And are those algorithms designed using the right objective function? What is the thing that we're asking them to optimize for? And so, for example, we saw that Facebook thought that optimizing for engagement for people, you know, liking things and sharing them with their friends and commenting would lead to deeper social connections. It turned out that it actually amplified hyperpartisanship, filter bubbles. There were people who came along and manipulated it. Now that's not entirely an old story. People learned to manipulate Google search results, and there's a lot that the tech, there's a lot that the tech industry has learned about how to combat that stuff. But Facebook didn't wake up soon enough. Obviously, it had profound consequences, including for the U.S. election. But I also, once again, an incredibly powerful metaphor for the economy, because our financial system is also one of these vast digital systems uh, of collective intelligence uh, managed by and influencing human behavior. And we have given it an objective function, and that objective function is increase corporate profits. Don't worry about anything else. Humans are a cost to be eliminated. I mean, this is you know, the parable of the rogue AI, given the wrong you know, uh, objective function. And so I thought, well, let's tell that story as well. So, uh, and then, of course, I, I lead on to the, the, you know, the positive side of this, which is that if you look at the power of technology to bring prosperity, to improve the human condition, it has done that tremendously. And as I said in my talk here yesterday, uh, you know, technology is our superpower and inequality is our kryptonite. You know, it's the thing that undermines that value of technology. And so, you know, uh, the real call to action is to say, okay, we can do better. We can rewrite the algorithms. We can share more of the fruits of productivity. Now, I'm not, you know, saying, oh, they should just be, we should have flat, uh, uh, you know, distribution of everything. But the thing that's so interesting to me about this current moment is that we actually see the seeds all around us of a non-monetary economy in which value is created and distributed for other reasons. You know, so you think about all the people who create content for the World Wide Web. 
Yes, there are a lot of businesses that came along and did that, but it didn't start that way. Uh, you think about all the ways that people choose to entertain each other. You know, it's like you don't think of, of you know, being on Facebook and sharing with your friends as work, but it's a kind of, it's, it, it is what we replace work with. It's this socializing, this sharing. Uh, you, you think about the creation of amazing content on YouTube. I think about someone like John and Hank Green, who, mm. you know, uh, John and Hank explain, and millions of kids mm. are learning about current events from these, you know, fast-talking <laughs> you know, people who are 10 years their senior, you know. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, all, you know, the Khan Academy, all of these people creating enormous value and sharing it. And here's the thing, that the algorithms that surface that stuff are not driven by money. You know, think about Google search results. You can't pay to up your position. Well, you can through kind of gaming the system with SEO and black hat SEO, but Google tries to combat that because they're really op trying to optimize for what do people want. And then they've attached a sidecar monetary economy of advertising onto that sort of natural economy of people sharing. And I think about that and I think about all the ways that we are starting to be able to optimize algorithms for distributing attention, distributing value that aren't based on the old primary mechanism we had for organizing the economy, which was money. And so I'm really fascinated by this notion of uh, improving the algorithms for distribution in a non-monetary econ economy. It's just, I just start in on that in the book. It's something I've been digging into more and thinking more about. But uh, there's a book that I, I cite in my book called Who Gets What and Why? by an economist called Alvin Roth, who basically got his Nobel Prize in economics for the study of markets uh, without money. Uh, in particular, uh, he studied college admissions, he studied uh, uh, um, you know, uh, the market for Supreme Court, uh, for, for, for uh, you know, court justices and, and clerks, uh, again, not a monetary market, and above all, uh, kidney transplant markets, uh, none of which uh, have money in play, but he basically looked at market design and how do you design better markets? And I think that we're at this point where we could design a better market in which the immense productivity of our you know, technology can make everyone wealthier with better distribution. And I think we, we just need to start thinking about distributional economics. And I think tech has a lot to teach the world about that. It's funny you mention uh, kidney donation. One of our clients at Whole Whale is uh, Donate Life America. So we work mm -hmm. with them on yeah. uh, increasing the registry. And I think that one of the things that you touch on in the book is the idea that you can automate a lot, but it's very hard to automate empathy. Yeah. And there seems to be that sort of, we're realizing that now that there's a lot, as you say, that we can use. Yeah. And to quote you to you, because I yeah. know how much yeah. authors love that. Uh, companies that only use technology to do less by getting rid of people will be surpassed by those who use it to help them to do more. Yeah, well, that's actually, that's a little bit different than the empathy point, although it, 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 it relates. Uh, you know, you think about, uh, I mean, one of the fundamental threads that runs through the book is this idea, you've got to be kidding me, uh, that, uh, you know, robots are going to take all the jobs. Look around, there's so much work that we're not getting to. Our infrastructure is crumbling. Uh, you know, our, our cities are uh, you know, a mess. Uh, we have climate change coming at us. Uh, healthcare needs so much improvement. We have aging populations that are going to need to be taken care of. We have to educate children. Uh, and if we took care of all of those problems, we'd still have what uh, 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 John Maynard Keynes uh, you know, kind of referred to as the ultimate economic problem. What 
human beings will do with their time once all the necessities of life are taken uh, care of. And I actually think that the creative economy teaches us a lot about that. And when I talk about the creative economy, I don't just mean, you know, music and literature and art. I mean things like food. You know, food is this incredible uh, lesson in what happens when technology makes things so cheap that, you know, ordinary people can have stuff that was once available only to kings and queens. You know, we all get, uh, you know, fruits and vegetables in, in, the, in the middle of winter. But more than that, this is incredible elaboration. Food didn't become a commodity. As it became a commodity, we found ways to make it valuable again. You know, by adding, uh, you know, like, you know, I think when I was growing up, there were like three uh, cuisines that, you know, it was American, of course, but there was sort of French, uh, there was maybe a French restaurant in town, an Italian restaurant, and a Chinese restaurant, and that was it. And now, you know, in any, you know, wealthy city, hundreds of different cuisines, different restaurants, the bounty of, of the entire world in terms of, of, you know, options. And, you know, we've made food valuable again. You think about beer became a commodity, you know, with vast, you know, uh, you know, uh, brands that were all pretty homogenous. And then we saw this craft beer movement arise. And so... In Austin. It, well, yeah, and, 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 you know, elsewhere around the world, but yes, in, in Austin. And that's an example of how humans take something that was a commodity and make it valuable again. So there's this huge opportunity you know, in that creative economy of doing amazing things for each other, even if all of the things that we currently think of as work are taken up. And then, of course, so there's the creative economy and then there's the caring economy, you know, and you think this is already happening. You know, people just need to understand this great quote from William Gibson that I use all the time. The future is here. It's just not evenly distributed yet. And we don't actually think to kind of look at the world in the right way. And so we miss the fact, for example, that the fastest growing jobs are, you know, like personal trainers. Uh, you know, in fact, uh, Jeff Weiner at LinkedIn pointed out in a recent talk, the fastest growing job in LinkedIn database was bar instructors, you know, for like the bar method. And like, you know, and it's like, because people are kind of looking for new ways to, you know, get fit and they look for people who can help them with that. And, and then you think about, uh, uh, you know, all the other kinds of coaching and teaching and education and, you know, opportunities that we can, you know, work on to improve each other. It is all the things that we do to be social together. And so, you know, I guess I, what I look at is if you go to any wealthy middle-class society where there's people have money to spend, they find things to make an economy about, to share with each other. So the fundamental question is not whether there will be job seeker around first because there's lots of work and secondly even if there is no work there's lots of opportunity for people to do things for each other and make a new economy so the fundamental question is is there enough distribution of the fruits of, of productivity that everyone has enough to go around to create that kind of circular economy or is it one where some small group of people are getting most of the of the, the, the wealth produced by the economy and they're hoarding it because as Nick Hanauer says, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm rich, but I can't, I can't sleep. I can only sleep on one pillow at a time. I can only eat one meal. Uh, you know, I make 10,000 times as much as other people. 
I can't consume 10,000 times as much, you know? So the only thing that keeps the economy going, we know this, is aggregate demand, people having money to spend. And so the people at the top have forgotten this. And it's the same way that Microsoft forgot that when they made the PC a wasteland where nobody could make any money anymore, people stopped investing in PCs and moved on to other markets, and they were trying to protect their old market and you know so they missed the next market and that's exactly what's happening to our economy as well you know and you look at it in the aggregate you know where you know uh, china is making massive investments in africa to bring them up kind of like we did with the marshall plan in europe after world war ii and they're going to end up with a much richer economy because making other people richer makes you richer whereas we've kind of uh, in the west we've kind of retreated from all of that uh, and, and we're spending all of our money on this sort of fake economy of, of uh, you know, trading bets in a betting market that we call the stock market and, and various derivatives markets from there. And it's not, it's not a real economy of things that benefit people. It's just a way of actually looting the economy. Uh, I wanting to be mindful of your time because yeah, we yeah, are here sure. at South by uh, three rapid fire questions. Yeah. If you could get into the hot tub time machine, change one thing uh, from from the past in your career, what would it be? In my career, um, or in the industry? Well, uh, I don't know. I don't think that way. Sorry. No problem. Um, Harry Potter wand can change one thing about the current uh, the current technological landscape as it is. Uh, well, I would. I would. I would create a lot more companies that are focused on, on customers rather than getting another round of venture capital. And what is one thing, uh, and this can be specific to, uh, this can be specific to tech, this can be specific to one area of tech, but what is one thing that you would like people to start doing, stop doing, and continue doing? Uh, well, I love people, uh, particularly entrepreneurs, I love them to start focusing on solving real problems and stop trying to come up with uh, sort of gimmicky startups that they can get funded, um, you know, where you have technology pretending to be searching for the answer to a problem. Uh, I'd really like, uh, uh, I want technologists deeply to stop thinking that one of their jobs is to make everything more efficient. Yes, you want to make things more efficient, but you want to make them more efficient so you can do more. You know, the thing that I find so interesting about a company like Amazon is here they are, the paragon of efficiency. They, you know, they basically are always looking for tiny improvements that just add up over time. But they immediately turn around and use those to up the ante. And, you know, they didn't say, well, we're going to actually just really improve our margins because now we've got robots in the warehouses. We'll get rid of all the warehouse workers. They actually hired hundreds of thousands of more workers so they could handle more products, get them out faster. And, you know, now we have same-day delivery in a lot, you know, so in a lot of, uh, of zip codes. So basically, they keep upping the ante. And that seems to me, you know, when I hear, you know, as I said, one investor told me, oh, I have a, a startup that's going to get rid of 30% of call center jobs. And I go, why aren't you saying I have a startup that will use AI to make uh, you know, call centers so much more effective and, and, you know, and better at what they do? And so I think the great entrepreneurs actually are continually trying to make things better. And I, I, I would love to see that be the religion of the entrepreneur. We're going to actually you know, do more 
do things that used to be impossible as opposed to uh, just kind of maintain the current system but make a little bit more money for somebody. That's your religion. You have your first convert here. All right. Thank you. Tim, thank you so much. Really a pleasure. Thanks so much. All right. This has been Using the Whole Whale, stories of data and technology in the social impact world. Resources, as always, may be found at wholewhale.com slash podcast. Thanks for joining us.